0: I get this idea that it's mitochondrial strain, so I want to improve the efficiency of the mitochondria. In a month's time, my fatigue is gone, my pain, the trigeminal neuralgia. Like, oh my God, I'm pain free. And my physical therapist is saying, Terry, you, you're definitely stronger. The change with reduction fatigue, it's a seven point scale and the clinical meaningful reduction is 0.45. We had a reduction of 2.38.
1: Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready? To take charge of your existence and biohack your life, this show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do it. Welcome back to
2: the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. Friends, today's conversation is so surreal for me. Terry Walls is such a legend. In the beginning of this episode, when she was telling her story, I literally got goosebumps. It was something I had heard before on her TED talk, and it was just so surreal to think, wow, she's saying this right now, live, in this moment, to me. And of course, to all of my audience, it was just the really incredible. And then the conversation five went conversation. so many cool directions that I didn't anticipate. A, a 90% so not just bets, diet, but things regarding muscle and the astronauts and NASA, you'll see. It was such an amazing conversation and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash walls. That's W-H-A-L-S. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. The second giveaway will be on my Instagram. Check out the post for this episode. And also comment on it to also win something that I love. If you are enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could subscribe in iTunes and also write a brief iTunes review, it just helps so much with helping the show rank in the charts, getting it more out there. So that really, really means so much. Some resources for you guys. If you at all struggle with reacting to foods like I do, you've got to get my app food sense guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. Things you might react to like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamines, salicylates, sulfites, oxalates, whether or not something is a nightshade, and also AIP auto. Immune paleo status. You can learn more about the compounds, make your own list to print and share, and so much more. You can get that at melanieavalon.com/slash-food-sense-guide. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Terry Walls. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so, so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with, honestly, a legend in the whole health diet world. That is the absolutely amazing Terry Walls. I have been a follower of Dr. Walls' work for Quite a long time, ever since I saw her TED talk, which came out quite a while ago. Since then, she's been the author of The Walls Protocol, a radical new way to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions using paleo principles. And she also has an incredible bio. She is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. She's a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts clinical trials that I'm really hoping that we can talk about some of those today. She was even awarded in 2018 the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for contributions to research, clinical care, patient advocacy. Really, she's just one of the most respected figures in this movement. So Dr. Walls, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So to start things off, I am pretty sure that Most of my listeners are probably very familiar with your work, but for those who are not, and even for those who are, could you tell listeners a little bit about your personal story? You have the most beautiful, incredible, encouraging story, and I'm so excited I get to hear it from you in this moment. So yes, could you tell listeners?
0: I'm going to take you back 20 years. I'm out walking with my wife, Jackie, a half mile from home. My left leg becomes weak. Dragging it, I hobble home. At night, laying in bed next to Jackie, I think about my zingers, the jolts of electrical face pain that have been growing relentlessly worse for 20 years. Now, not wanting to become a burden, I am secretly praying for a fatal diagnosis. You know, I go to see my neurologist, and he says, Terry, this could be bad or really, really bad. And as I said, I'm thinking about those zingers. And so, I'm praying for that fatal diagnosis. It takes three years. I take the mitosanthroin infusions. I get the tilt recline wheelchair. I take tisabria. I take salsap, but nothing helps. I am too weak to sit up at my desk. I order a zero-gravity chair so I can recline back with my knees higher than my nose. And I let go of my future. Instead, I learn to take each day as it unfolds. My zingers turn on. Those jolts of electrical face pain my 10-year-old daughter hugs me uh, triggering more pain but you know i'm a physician night after night i go to pubmed to read the basic science and i begin experiments on you know, myself the speed of my decline slows i discover a study using electrical stimulation of muscles i ask my physical therapist can i try that it's called e my test session hurts bad but when it's over, I feel great, and I begin doing E to as much pain as I can tolerate. Now I, I know I cannot recover, but is there more that I could do to slow my decline? I begin meditating. I redesign my paleo diet based on all the science that I've been studying, and just one month later, I. And sit up at my desk. Three months later, those horrible zingers of 27 years are gone. And five months later, I walk without even a cane. And then, for the first time in six years, with my son Zach jogging alongside on the left, my daughter Zeb on the right, I get back on my bike. It wobbles, but I catch my balance and I am biking and my family is crying. And so am I. Then, 10 years later, I received the Linus Pauling Award for my groundbreaking clinical research and patient care protocol. I am Terry Walls, and I am now transforming the lives of millions, restoring their hope for a better future.
2: Wow. That was one of the most beautiful things I have ever heard. Thank you so much. So we haven't actually said yet what you were diagnosed with. Were you anticipating multiple sclerosis as the diagnosis?
0: You know, interestingly enough, I had not. You know, and maybe it was just denial. The fact that had 20 years of a relentless sensory problem, I I didn't know when my neurologist said, you know, it's going to be bad or really, really bad. I'm thinking ALS or MS. I knew since I had a sensory problem, it probably wasn't ALS, but I didn't want to be disabled. So I was like, you know what? I'll vote for ALS. But of course, that wasn't what happened. So if a person just briefly Googles MS, for example,
2: the first thing Google tells you is that some people go their whole lives without symptoms.
0: What actually is MS? There appears to be periods of intermittent worsening. These are called uh, relapses. So clinically, you have worse symptoms, whether it's a sensory disturbance or a motor disturbance. And if you did an MRI, you'd see an enhancing lesion on MRI. And then over the next several months, the brain accommodates. It adds sodium channels, and it can send impulses, albeit more slowly and you have a reduction in symptoms, and that's called the remission. So for about 80% of those who are first diagnosed, they have this relapsing and remitting phase. But behind all of that is this progressive accumulation of permanent loss, either permanent destruction, uh, disturbance of the sensory function, or permanent disturbance of motor function. And we also now know there's a progressive decline in cognition as well. So within 10 years of diagnosis, you know, a third of folks will have really very severe gait disability, severe fatigue disability. Most will be unable to work due to severe fatigue.
2: So basically the nerves are deteriorating. The body adds these sodium channels to keep things functioning. But then I get, you just reach a point where
0: where you can't cope. And structurally we know that the myelin, that's the wiring insulation is breaking down and we know now that the brain volume and the spinal cord volume is decreasing. When I was first diagnosed, nobody was talking about mitochondria because I was reading the basic science. I thought, no, 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 there's too much parallel between that and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, ALS, uh Huntington's disease and mitochondria are a problem in all those diseases, I was sure mitochondria was a problem in MS as well. So uh, my original things that I was doing was all focused on supplements to support my mitochondria. And, and, you know, originally, it, it was slowing down the speed of my decline, which had been, you know, very, very fast, almost like an ALS fast. But you know, I was still declining. It wasn't until I really, you know, did my deeper dive and redesigned my diet and then attacked every aspect of my self-care routine that I stopped my decline and then had this, you know, stunning recovery. This is a very
2: naive question, but just to get a big picture on there, are two M words, the myelin and the mitochondria, do the nerves in the myelin have mitochondria? Like where is the mitochondria on the myelin?
0: Now, it's sort of interesting, again, when I was reading all this stuff, originally in 2004, 2005, nobody was saying that the myelin had any mitochondria. Now we're beginning to think that, in fact, there may be mitochondrial function in the myelin as well. So the, the picture is not not completely understood yet, but the the myelin certainly requires a lot of energy. There is more thinking that the myelin does have mitochondria in it as well.
2: So like with the mitochondria dysfunction throughout the body, that anyway would not be providing enough energy to the myelin.
0: The brain and the retina are are really the energy hogs for the organism. Uh, And so the number of mitochondria in a brain cell is is huge, and the number of mitochondria in the retinal cells are huge, and in the heart cells. Those are the most mitochondrial dense cells. Now there's some evidence that's emerging suggesting that mitochondria is in the myelin as well. That answer is not fully in yet, but we'll see.
2: That's so, so fascinating. Yeah, so I was reading how when you got the diagnosis, you were reading studies about fish oil, CoQ10, and creatine in in rats? Or
0: was it mice? It was in mice. You know, actually, those were Parkinson's studies. And remember, I'm reading Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, ALS. And these are all mouse models. As I'm reading those studies, the common theme is mitochondrial dysfunction sending early signals for apoptosis to the nucleus. I get this idea that it's mitochondrial strain, so I want to improve the efficiency of the mitochondria. So then I'm I'm trying to read basic science for mitochondrial studies and I'm gradually yeah and the NIH fund studies one molecular pathway at a time, one molecule at a time. So I'm I'm gradually adding supplements one molecule at a time to this cocktail. Yeah. I think it was about six months into it, I get disgusted because, you know, I'm not getting any better. I'm still feeling exhausted. And I, I quit. I quit all my supplements. I just say, ah, fooey." And so, you know, I, I go to work the next day, like usual, and I'm, you know, pretty exhausted, uh, you know, by 10, I'm in my zero gravity chair. Yeah, you know, and I come back home and the next morning, I just c- cannot go to work. I, I am so 36 hours. I am just really non-functional. And the next day I'm even more non-functional. And then the day after that, my wife says, you know, honey, you didn't take your supplements. Why do you take them? And I take them that evening. And the next morning I can sit up and I go to work. And I think, wow, that's really interesting. So I wait two weeks and I stop my supplements again. And 36 hours later, I just cannot function. And, you know, I wait, you know, again on the third day in the evening, I take my supplements again. And the next morning I can get up and I can go back to work. And I think, wow, I am so excited. I am so excited. Like, So I am really excited about reading the basic science, you know, reading more, thinking more about what can I find for mitochondrial function. And so I'm really uh, trying to look for what are the various supplements that would be helpful for mitochondria. And, you know, so gradually I get a, a more complicated supplement cocktail. And that's what happens for the next three years. That I'm, you know, gradually getting a, a more nuanced supplement cocktail. Yeah, I've been doing the paleo diet for seven years by then, in the supplement cocktail for you know about three and a half years by then, and then I discovered that study using electrical stimulation of muscles. I convinced my physical therapist to let me have a test session. That was quite a conversation, because you know his response, and he treated athletes. So he was quite familiar with that. He used it a bunch on his athletes. And he says, you know, Terry, I can grow bigger muscles for you. There's no question about that. But we don't know that your brain can talk to these muscles. So I could be making your legs heavier, and you might not be able to use the muscle I grow. And so I could be making things even worse than they are. Plus, it's painful, and you have all of this pain from your MS. I don't know that you can tolerate it. We had a a vigorous debate. And fortunately for me, he said, okay, we'll give you a test session. It hurt bad. But when it was over, I felt the best I had felt in years. Dave said, it's probably the endorphins, you know, because I I had just gotten a a big set of endorphins because my muscles had worked and it had a lot of pain. Pain releases endorphins. So I I went to clinic, you know, three times a week for my e-STEM sessions. And after two weeks said, okay, it looks like you, you can do this. And he was able to demonstrate that I could put on the electrodes and he ordered a home going device and I was able to demonstrate I could do that. So he, he told me that, okay, he gave me a little program that I'd start working on my back muscles, which were so weak, which is why I could not sit up. I worked on my tib anterioris muscle, which is the muscle that flexes your ankles upward. The goal was to get at least 15 minutes a day, because that's what you do to prevent muscle atrophy. If I could get 45 minutes a day to the muscles that were weak, then I could be growing bigger muscles. And so, you know, 45 minutes a day, that would be like three hours a day if I was going to do the back muscles, the abdominal muscles, and the leg muscles he wanted me to do. And I was like, well, that's a lot of time to try and figure out in my day because I'm still working full-time. So I I had to sort of figure out how to do my E-STEM while while I was working. What I did was I'd put my electrodes on, I'd dial up the current, and so you'd have 10 seconds of current, which, which, you know, inducing a strong muscle contraction. And I dial it up to as much current as I could tolerate. So I'm in a sweat from pain. And then I have 20 seconds of no current, no pain, and then I could do my work. But, it, you know, if I'm seeing patients, I, I, I couldn't dial my current up that intensely that I'm, you know, sweating from pain. So on my clinic days, it was just somewhat uncomfortable. On my non-clinic days, you know, I was doing pain, absolutely to as much pain as I could tolerate.
2: Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. And so, the reason the the muscles originally atrophy is it because the nerves are not sending the signal to
0: use the muscles, and so then they atrophy. Correct. So, so they atrophy, and the mitochondria aren't being stimulated. The mitochondria shrink; they decrease in number, they decrease in size. The muscle cells actually look, look very ill because the muscle cells have decreased you get a shift in the cytokine profile, you get a shift in lipid metabolism, you get a shift in blood sugar metabolism, which really ramps, drives you towards insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, overt diabetes on the basis of this severe inactivity. Yeah, I was just thinking
2: because I recently interviewed Dr. Benjamin Bickman about insulin resistance and we were talking about how the muscle is likely the largest thing for glucose, and it's usually the first thing that becomes insulin resistant. So if you're losing your muscle, I mean, that must just be a train straight to metabolic issues.
0: Yes. And if we look at the literature for MS patients, they have higher rates of central obesity, higher rates of insulin resistance, higher rates of polycystic ovarian disease, higher rates of prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. And of course, cognitive decline and all of that is is fundamentally linked if i if i march it all the way back to that inactivity, decreased utilization of those muscle cells, decreased mitochondrial health in the muscle cell using the muscles. And then we know there's some very interesting work done and people were paralyzed. You know, and actually If if I go back to that that first study that inspired me to to do all of this, I, I read that study because I was on the institutional review board for the university, so we review all the clinical research for safety, and I had said, give me the cases to review related to the brain and the nervous system. So I was reviewing a study that used electrical stimulation of muscles in people who had been paralyzed from a traumatic brain injury. And the investigator wanted to extend the study for another five years because the patients found it so valuable, they didn't want to stop doing the e-stimp. So these folks would come in, they'd get hooked up to the machines that would drive them to do squats and, and presses for the quads and the hamstrings, driven by electricity. They're paralyzed, they'll never walk, they're not going to walk. That's just not going to happen. But because they were now doing the E-STEM, they were maintaining their muscle mass in their quads and their glutes. You know, their calves were, were getting pretty pretty weak because they, they weren't being stimulated. But the quads and the glutes were strong. They maintained their bone density. They maintained their muscles in their quads. They maintained their insulin sensitivity. They maintained normal lipid profiles. They maintained a better mood. The folks who didn't get stimulated had all these metabolic dysfunctions, had more depression and anxiety and lower quality of life. Isn't that interesting? Yeah,
2: it's incredible. Do you know if they've done research on astronauts and insulin sensitivity?
0: That I don't know. I, I do know that we had pitched to NASA doing E-STEM for the astronauts while they're on this extended space travel.
2: That was my second question. <laughs> Could they do it in space?
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, and I think that would be a very useful strategy. When I first started doing this E-STEM, and, you know, my my kids are are thrilled to, to see me doing all, all of this stuff. And if, if you want to think uh, some of the sci-fi movies that were out at that time, if you remember The Matrix, in one of the scenes in The Matrix, Neo, you know, he comes out, he's, he's weak, uh, really can't do anything, and they hook him up to these needles that they put into his muscles to regrow his muscles. You know, I'd be doing my East his sack, my son, and his buddies would be over, and my son would be explaining to his friends, you know, it's just like Neo, she's hooking up to regrow all those muscles. And, and that was an entirely accurate, entirely accurate. So that's part of, part of why I recovered so quickly, so remarkably, was that my physical therapist treated me like his athletes, and I was willing to train at a level that that we can't do in any of my clinical trials and I can't ask my patients to do because athletes will do things that you can't ask patients to do and you wouldn't have FDA approval to do the kind of training program that I did. Did NASA respond favorably to your proposal? I'm not at liberty to say. Oh, man. <laughs> Dying
2: to know. <laughs> Okay. We'll have to see. One other question about the muscle stem Is this at all related to, I know cosmetically people can do, it's not for health reasons, but they have things now called like cool toning or M-Sculpt where it's to grow muscle cosmetically.
0: I don't know those devices, so I I can't comment on them. I know there are quite a number of, of electrical See neuromuscular electrical stimulation devices that are out there the over the counter devices have a lower amount of current that they can deliver than a prescription device uh, it's about a, a third the amount of current that can be de- uh, delivered uh, to be sure that it's safe a number of the athletes first started using these types of devices in Russia and in East Germany this is a way yeah, as my physical therapist said, to grow more muscles, because you're, you're putting intermittent, moderate, severe stress on the muscle with the E current without the use of testosterone or growth hormone, which are banned. So many athletes will do electrical stimulation as part of their strength training program. Those sports that require strength, particularly uh, high velocity strength, Explosive strength. The use of electrical stimulation is quite common. Or, or if the athlete has had an injury and has to immobilize a joint, so so you're immobilizing the joint, but you don't want to have the muscle mass decrease. You'll have the joint immobilized, but you may continue to do e-stim to the uh, muscles across that joint, so you don't lose muscle mass.
2: Wow. I wonder if in like way in the future like for hospital patients on bed rest, if it'll just be common practice to have something like this?
0: Yeah, I just updated my uh, book, uh, The Walls Protocol. We re- republished it last spring. And so I, I reviewed the literature for e and what's being done. Because uh, a lot has happened in the uh, last seven years. We now have a number of very interesting clinical trials where you have ICU patients, so intensive care, in bed, going to be in bed for a while, so they're coming in and hooking them up to electrodes in their quads, in their hamstrings, plus minus the glutes, but quads and hamstrings are, are pretty easy to get to, so they give them exercise every day. Some folks are also doing the calves to, both for the exercise, but also as DVT prophylaxis. Clinical trials have been very positive. That's not become the standard of care, but I could certainly see that being an alternative to the the balloon jabs on legs for a deep venous prophylaxis, and as an alternative to anticoagulation prophylaxis. Plus, I mean, it, it it it's physiologically much much better for us because you're decreasing the inflammatory cytokine profile by having the muscles actually work.
2: Yeah. This is so incredible. I will keep my fingers crossed for the future of all of this. Switching gears a little bit, but still in the same sphere. So you spoke about the things that made you know a big difference in your recovery, the supplements, the eStem, stem the redesigning of your paleo diet. What did that look like?
0: I mean, and I like the paleo diet uh, a whole lot, but I, I want to remind your listeners that you know in my story so I'm diagnosed in 2000 it's clear that I'm relentlessly going downhill in 2002 my neurologist uh, mentions the work of Lauren Credane I read his books and it's it's a big deal so I read his books his papers and I decide to go back to eating meat because I had been a vegetarian for about 20 years for ethical reasons and I continued to decline for the next 5 years but i stayed with it cuz at least i felt like okay i'm doing something i'm adding supplements i still i'm still declining albeit more slowly what is really interesting so i i add the e stem i've discovered functional medicine i get a longer list of supplements uh, which i add and i'm i'm doing e stem accelerating my uh, dose of e stem so for the next 2 months not a lot has happened maybe just a not quite as weak in terms of my torso. And then I get this, aha, like what if I redesign my paleo diet based on all the science uh, that I've been reading and everything I'm taking in the supplement form, and by now there's I think 19 different things. So I, I consult with my registered dietitian friends, and they're like, well, you know, we'd need an intern to figure this out. They couldn't really tell me what the food sources were. So I I go back to the library. They can't really help me too much in terms of references. So I I do some more uh, searching. I find the Linus Pauling uh, Micronutrient Center. And using them, I redesign my paleo diet in a really very specific way, emphasizing at first a list of foodstuffs that, that I would add to my diet. I do that, and it's startling. In a month's time, my fatigue is gone, my pain, the trigeminal neuralgia, which had, had been, you know, getting worse for 27 years, I'm pain-free. Like, oh my God, I'm pain-free. That is just stunning. And my physical therapist is saying, Terry, you, you're definitely stronger. And he starts having me lift weights. And then when this changes how I think about clinical practice and I start trying to teach my patients to do what I'm doing, I can't give them these long lists of food. It's just not a practical way to change people's behaviors. You have to give them a, a structure where that's a simpler way of teaching the concepts. So now I, I, I'm, I'm spending more time thinking about how can I organize some fairly simple rules that will get the big picture of what I'm doing? Maybe not the fine details, but the big picture that would really help people along. And that's where I I end up creating the Wallace Protocol. And I have level one, level two, level three. Now, really, it's four levels to the diet. That's increasingly complex as people move along in the journey in terms of how far they're willing to go with making this kind of big dietary change and I also, in the journey, decided that I would create systems that could work for people who are vegetarian for their spiritual beliefs, and for people who would really benefit from a ketogenic eater, from being in ketosis because of their underlying neurologic conditions. So, so it's nuanced, but I have an entry point for people that is really you know very very basic, and for many of my Patients uh, at the VA, even my very basic entry-level point for thinking about this led to stunning, stunning health changes. And the other thing that I, that I observed was because I had had, you know, this stunning health change, I was actually remarkably effective talking to my vets saying, you know, you've been suffering with, you know, I could insert it's most often is very helpful with with pain suffering with severe pain due to their particular medical condition for years. You know, I'd ask them, you know, would you be interested in doing a, a little experiment to see what diet and lifestyle could do? because what you're doing isn't working. And I invite you, if you're ready, I'll give you some simple diet instruction to try, and let's come back and see where things are at with your next visit. Uh, and so I could do this pretty effectively. My residents would be stunned. At, you know, I, I could have this conversation in five minutes and get these guys fired up to do these radical things known as get rid of sugar. I'd ask them to go gluten-free and ramp up the vegetables, particularly non-starchy ones, and then have protein every day. And, and of course, what would sort out if they were a meat eater or a not meat eater, because so I, I would recognize that and we would accommodate uh, accordingly. I'd also in the mediators I encourage them to have liver once a week. And if I said look, we'll just do this as an experiment. You take take the gluten out at least to go gluten-free preferably for a month and see what you think. Ideally that they'd go gluten-free to they would see me next in clinic. And what stunned the residents was you know easily when I first started doing this I could convince half of these vets to make these really big changes in their diet with that five-minute conversation. By the time I retired from the VA, I was probably having uh, a 90% of my vets go on that journey with me, which is stunning. And when did you first conduct your clinical trials on the diet? This is another fun story. So, you know, I'm remarkably better. I'm, I'm walking around the hospital at the VA. It's time for my every two-year review with my chair of medicine at the university. And now he hasn't seen me in about a year. And it's a quarter mile down a hill, up a hill at the university. I think, you know, that's probably too far for me. By this time, I've swapped out my wheelchair for a little scooter, but I hadn't used it in a long time. And so I'm going to take the scooter over to the university. And going up the hill, it's dying. So I, I get out and I walk next to it. Yeah, I can get you know a few more feet and that dies entirely. So I disengage it, push it the rest of the way up the hill. And I park it by the entrance and the attendant there offers to call the patient mobile. And I say, okay, that sounds good. But I'd have to wait. Oh, I think he said half an hour. I thought, oh my goodness, I was already late to my appointment with the chairs. I, I couldn't do that. So I, I walk slowly to my appointment. You know, by the time I get there. I'm a half hour late. The secretary chews me out, ushers me into the office. I'm very apologetic about being late. I explained that my scooter died. And he goes, oh, so you had to wait for the patient mobile. So no, actually, I decided I'd leave it and I would walk up. He goes, you walked? Because he hadn't seen me walk in probably four years. And so I explained what I'd done, my diet. I showed him my e-STEM device. He was intrigued. He was a rheumatologist. He certainly understood that serious autoimmune diseases, even MS, don't reverse when you are as advanced as my case was. He told me first to get a case report written up. Once we had that written up, he then gave me the job of getting a clinical trial going. And I explained that that wasn't the area that I researched because I researched diagnostic error. And he said, you know, Terry, we'll get you the mentors. This is too important. You need to do this. And so I saluted, like, okay. So in 2010, we enrolled our first patient. It's what we call a safety and feasibility study, where everyone gets the intervention. You are measuring can people do it? Will they actually do everything? And it was a big question because what I was doing was very complicated. You know, it was diet, it was supplements, it was meditation, it was exercise, it was electrical stimulation of muscles. It was very complicated. And so the question was, could people do it? And then if they did, did they have any serious adverse events? And then the third question is, what was the effect size on patient-reported outcomes of fatigue, quality of life, and on uh, measurable motor functions, uh, walking and hand and working memory. And so what is remarkable is that people gave up the sugar, gave up the processed foods, really dramatically ramped up their vegetables from one and a half servings a day to nearly eight servings a day. So that's quite remarkable. They exercised. People who were profoundly exhausted were actually exercising every day. And in fact, they did the e-stem. So we were able to show that they were remarkably successful at implementing this very complicated regimen that we'd asked them to implement. And the side effects? As a matter of fact, I had such serious side effects. I had to report them, data safety monitoring board every three months. And my serious side effect was people who were overweight or obese lost weight and lost weight rapidly. To get back into a healthy body weight, I had to show that no one became underweight. So fortunately, that was good. And then we were able to enroll 10 to show that nobody got hurt, no one got hurt, and that the trend for improvement was in the correct direction. And if you have only 10 people, no one expects you to have any statistical significance to any of your findings. Of course, we would not expect that to happen, but we did. The change with reduction fatigue was really quite remarkable. It's a seven-point scale, seven being more severe fatigue and one being no fatigue in any aspect of your life. And the clinical meaningful reduction is 0.45. So we had a reduction of 2.38. That is like the largest reduction fatigue severity that had been reported to date, and the p-value is 0.0008. So that was just remarkable. We were given permission to enroll the next 10, and again, I had to keep reporting my, my safety stuff because people kept losing weight quickly. No one became underweight, and we continued to see remarkable reductions in fatigue, severity, improvements in quality of life, quality of life improvements. If you get a five-point improvement, that's clinically meaningful, and we got 16-point improvements in quality of life. In terms of motor function, that takes longer to see. We had a couple folks got big changes in motor function early at either three or at three months. A couple others got them at nine months. And I think it makes sense that it it takes a while to build the muscles because, you know, these folks, when you have progressive MS and you're in the progressive phase, you've had your disease probably from... 15 to 25 years. So the level of atrophy, the level of dysfunction in those muscle cells is really quite severe. So it will take a long time to to recover. And we were not pushing people like athletes the way my physical therapist had allowed me to push myself. That would not have been approved by our IRB. So we certainly were not going to ask them to go beyond what would have been compatible with FDA guidance at that point. So of course, they're going to come back much more slowly.
2: Also related to that, because you spoke about how quickly you improved. And then I was reading in your book about the, I don't know if it's the half-life or the turnover of different cells in the body. And you were saying that the myelin are, I think, seven to 10 years to be completely replaced. I was wondering what what role that plays in healing.
0: I think it's really helpful for us to think about The fact that our immune cells chaperone the repair and replacement of all of our cellular structures within the cell, your cell will do that, but the cellular structures as a whole will get digested and replaced when the cell has been identified as damaged by the immune cells. So your cell, if it's only mildly damaged, can repair the constituent damages through something called autophagy if there's more extensive damage that the cell has to be completely dissolved and then replaced then you end up you know replacing the entire cell and and again depending on what cell it is you know your lining of your mouth to your anus that gets replaced about every 10 days you know in my book i go through all the various cell types your your bone is about 20 years your nervous tissue is 7 to 10 years. And so if we think from my nadir, I would be about 10 years out. And so clearly, I, I'm doing very well. I continue to get stronger and stronger. And, and in some capacities, when I, when I see my neurologist, he says, well, in many ways, my neurologic function looks better than other women my you know, same chronologic age. In some capacity, and, you know, I still have some fixed damage, you know, if I go to my neuro-ophthalmologist, there's still evidence of the old optic neuritis that I've had, but he also says, like, you know, it's remarkable that you still see as remarkably well as you do, given the severity of damage that you've had. So we can do a lot of repair, but you may not be able to get it all back. The fact you can get any back, you know, what, what, when I went to medical school, I mean, we're clearly taught if you damage your nervous system, it was not coming back. The fact that we can get anything back now is, is, was a radical concept. The fact that we can get anything back, I think, offers immense amount of hope for anyone with a progressive neurologic disorder.
2: It's kind of like what they say, and I still don't know if this is true about your teeth, that once you lose your teeth, you can never get them back. I don't know if that's a completely different structure.
0: Once the tooth is pulled, you'd have to have another tooth bud. And there are a few people that have three tooth buds, and so they can, in fact, get another tooth back. The vast majority cannot. Although, who knows, that may change. You know, salamanders, for example, if you cut a limb off, they do have the capability of regrowing that limb. So there may be a possibility that we will understand that and have that capability in the future. It's, it's not understood well enough yet, but will it someday? Perhaps. Friends,
2: you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, and the best light that is so helpful I wasn't even thinking like teeth pulled. I was thinking like they lose the mineralization. Oh, yes, that you can repair. That you can repair. Mm-hmm. And grow back. Yeah, yeah. That's what they say. Once you lose the enamel, it's gone.
0: Actually, there are uh, some dentists who are pretty effective with that. You're, you're going to have to have clean up your diets, obviously. You'll also need to increase your vitamin K2, MK4 intake that will be immensely helpful. That really directs the remineralization of your teeth and of your bones. You also want to reduce the internal pH so that there's more, it's a more alkaline diet, a less acidic diet. So certainly, yes, we have seen people improve their mineralization and heal their cavities. I would keep in mind for all your listeners is scientific concepts Well, let me me come back. Humans, we have an immense confirmation bias. We understand the world and we will reject information that doesn't comport with our understanding of the world for a long time. That's because we can't deal with the volume of information coming to us, so we have to simplify everything. It's, It's absolutely necessary for us to function. What that means, though, is we ignore a lot of important information. In the scientific world, it means that new concepts. I'll reject, 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 until there's finally enough evidence. Like, okay, I guess we we have to accept this new concept. Uh, you can think the ways to think about that is scurvy used to be the major killer of sailors. We had two scientific discoveries: sauerkraut and citrus could prevent scurvy. As two different captains that made that observation, and yet it took the naval industry two hundred years to accept that observation. Then we have hand-washing and germ theory, and that was roundly ridiculed. I don't recall how many years it took us to accept hand-washing, I think maybe 50. Then more recently, uh, Helicobacter pylori as a driver of gastric ulcers and duodenal ulcers. And when Barry Marshall promoted that theory, people rejected him. The first Places he tried to get his findings published were basically throwaway journals, very regional. He was his scientific theories were soundly rejected, but he basically paid lit, paid a journal to publish his findings. He then had a publicist get his papers talked about in the let's see National Enquirer, Reader's Digest. Oh wow. Isn't that wild? Wow. Yeah. And 25 years later, the guy gets a Nobel Prize in medicine because the public drove the interest. And then he got more funding for his science. He got published in more rigorous journals. And now his science, same. And he had more money so he could hire more PhDs to help him design better studies. Yes, all of that is true. And so, so when people, you know, come to me and say like, you know, people... They're, they're mad at scientists for rejecting me. I'm like, you're mad at them for being human. You do the same thing. I do the same thing. We all do the same thing. It, it's it's part of how biology survives the fact that our brain has to cope with more information than we can possibly cope with. It's a very normal part of biologic life. It's part of why we're in such trouble with now in, in politics and in our social media that we we have difficulty discerning the huge amount of uh, volume information th- that it makes it difficult for us to sort out what's real, what's not real. There are all sorts of challenges that way. But I guess where I was going with all of that is when I look at at the trajectory of the level of rejection that I faced in the conventional world and with my colleagues with my concepts of this very integrative approach towards improving the health of my patients, and my approach to treating MS and autoimmunity. In 2009, I'm called into the uh, chair of medicine, the chief of staff's office, and warned that people are complaining, and I got that I need to stop what I'm doing. Now, fortunately, I because I, I, I would, had prepared for this, I had brought in all my scientific papers, or actually just a handful of them. And to explain what I was doing and why, and won them over. I started doing the science, which people hated at first. But I had my little every year at the research week. I would present our data, which was, you know, startlingly positive. And then, you know, I had to publish my papers in little throwaway, terrible, you know, low impact journals at first. And then I get into a little higher impact journal. A little higher impact journal. We have just finished our fourth study. Very fun, exciting results. We've analyzed it. We are getting our manuscript ready, and we'll be submitting that off to much higher impact journals, and we'll get funded. Yeah, you know, we'll get we'll find the right home for it. And we have our fifth study going. I'm writing grants for our sixth and our seventh study. And the fact that I'm presenting now at national and international meetings. All over the world and i'm I 'm not this crackpot anymore now, you know here at the university and around the world i 'm being seen more as this brilliant visionary and that's eleven years it 's really very
2: fast that's absolutely incredible, and I love all of that about how our brain perceives information and it makes me feel even better about things like you coming on podcasts like this because you're speaking to the it's kind of like not the Reader's Digest and National Enquirer, but just the importance of having cultural...
0: It's the early adopters. Yeah. You're the early adopters. Although I want to remind the listeners that we're early adopters in some aspect of our life. And I assure you, you are a denier in other aspects of your life. None of us can tolerate being early adopter in every aspect of our life. Oh, wow. That's so, so mind-blowing. It's disheartening when you realize when you realize that, of course.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm gonna like after this call, I'm gonna be analyzing my life for where I'm the the early and late adapter. I want to be super respectful of your time. I will refer listeners, you have to get the walls protocol for all of the details on everything to have a complete understanding. There's so much in there. I wanted to ask you one really quick question that really Haunted me after reading your book. And it was, you spoke about the importance, at least for patients, I believe, with MS, doing 100% no cheating for 100 days. And you spoke about something called like epitope spreading and how things could possibly get worse. I just know so many of my listeners, whether or not they have something like MS, there's often this idea of cheating on diets when you're addressing health issues. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are about that.
0: Well, We go for a while thinking, you know, I can get exposed to gluten, dairy, or eggs. It'll trigger my pain. And then I, you know, clean everything up, think carefully, and I get pain-free. The unfortunate reality is that I, I can't always be certain that you can ever get back completely to baseline. And if we keep challenging myself so that I get exposed to, uh, we'll say, gluten is the problem. And so now I have created a molecular mimicry. So we we know it, it messes with some internal brain structures for me. But let's say I keep getting exposed occasionally. Now, in addition to going after my brain structure, it's begun to go after my liver because of molecular mimicry in the sequencing that in my unique genetics. So, I caution people that if we don't get to the root cause, every 5 to 10 years you'll pick up another autoimmune disease. So, you might start out with asthma, go to endometriosis, go to psoriasis, go to MS, go to primary biliary cirrhosis, go to a another autoimmune process that maybe we have classified it as an autoimmune diagnosis or just as a possible autoimmune diagnosis or simply as an autoimmune process And that the best you could hope then is that I can slow my primary biliary cirrhosis, but I'm not able to really stop it because I've, I've triggered the process. And there's some evidence that ALS may have an autoimmune process in it as well. And if I trigger ALS... Then that's likely to be, you know, a a fatal disease process. So what I caution people is that better to not cheat. Once you figure out that there is a sensitive problem, stay off it. Although I I will also tell people that even if you're you're not ready to go gluten free, and we tell people in my clinics at the VA that in my lifestyle clinic, people could get referred into us, and we'd give them the initial spiel of my story and the concepts of functional medicine. And then I would lay out three choices. One is that this is not the right time for you to take on doing diet and lifestyle changes because you have other major issues that you're facing with perhaps a severe financial strain or a health challenge with some other member of your family just can't take it on now. Or that it feels like too big of an ask, but you want to work on improving your diet. So we send you to the dietitian to work on improving your diet. And most often, these folks start on a Mediterranean diet. Or then I say, or if you're ready to be all in, 100%, at least 100% gluten free and eating more vegetables, or at least 100%, 100% gluten free and no junk food, you can come. If you're 100% all in, you can come to my lifestyle clinic and we'll work closely with you. But I want people to do this as a family, because if you can't do it as a family, and let's say just the patient is going to make these diet and lifestyle changes, but all around them, the rest of the family is still with the old way of eating and thinking about life, they will struggle, and it will be very, very hard for them to be successful. But if we do whatever the change is as a family, the whole family will experience benefit and they will be much more successful. And then they'll they'll come at the pace of change that is sustainable for them. Yeah, I think
2: that is such a key factor, the the social aspect that a lot of people deal with especially when they're trying to follow diets that they perceive as often in the beginning at least potentially restrictive, though I feel like a lot of people grow to love the the freedom they get from the foods they're eating and the health experiences, but focus on <laughs> The other people is often quite a hurdle for people.
0: Correct. And so in my lifestyle clinics, in my clinics, in my programs, we stress doing this all as a family and we bring families in so that they can all understand why we do things the way we do them. And we can help break down how to uh, do things in a way that is successful.
2: So in your family, out of the four, like the whales, like the Paleo Plus, the elimination, what do you guys all do in your family?
0: Everyone in, in my house is probably doing Wall's Paleo. I am doing a ketogenic version of my diet, so the olive oil ketogenic version, and I eat every other day. Periodically, I will do a periodic fast in addition for the benefits related to the Stem cells and the anti-aging capacity as well. No eating every other day. Correct. Oh wow! You know that when you first start doing that, that's that's uh, you're pretty hungry. And I talk about you ease into uh, time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, predic fast at at the at the pace that you are curious and in your interest in doing. There, there is no need to go into any more advanced eating strategy than you are curious for, or that you, want, you wish to experiment with.
2: I love that. It is a beautiful mindset. I might steal some of that. I'll attribute it to you. But on the Intermittent Fasting podcast, we get a lot of questions about, you know, finding the right protocol for them. And that's just a really, really great way of looking at it.
0: You know, if your health is superb at level one of the Walls diet, or at the Mediterranean diet, then that's the diet to stay at. And if your health is superb eating the standard American diet, you're not likely to want to make any changes because we get so much pleasure out of the sugar and the processed foods. So likely, they may have great health their whole life and that's fine. They're likely to not want to make a change until someone in their family has a health change and now there's a reason for them to want to give up that pleasure.
2: Yeah, I'm so jealous of It seems like in the work in supercentenarians that they basically just have genes
0: that... We all have those genes. We all have those genes. They've created a culture that has the ability to live to 90 and 100 very well. And that culture has not yet been thoroughly contaminated. But in those societies, when those cultures are contaminated with the westernized diet of sugar and processed foods the lifespan dramatically falls and comes back to westernized lifespans. I wonder if
2: there are because I was interviewing James Clement. Have you met James? He's done a lot of work in super centenarians. They found that like some people are the outliers. so even if even if the culture changed and the food was processed and terrible, that they have some genes that basically stay activated similar to what we would have to do with like calorie restriction or fasting. And so they're sort of protected regardless of what diet they have. So it's not like the entire culture, but those outlier people.
0: Well, there are uh, a couple um, folks who have, I think it's in Ecuador. They also have a very short stature uh, and and slowed uh, aging as well. Yeah. Well,
2: this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of your work that you're doing.
0: And, and do you have the links to all of my websites?
2: Yeah, we'll put it all in the show notes. But what is the best way for listeners to follow your work?
0: Follow me on Instagram at Dr. Terry Walls, D-R-T-E-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S, uh, on Facebook and Twitter at Terry Walls, my website, terrywalls.com. And if you want to get a one-page summary of my diet, that's at terwalls.com forward slash diet. I'll see to you get a link to our research studies so people can send people. Uh, we're particularly recruiting folks newly diagnosed with MS or clinically isolated syndrome. And you may uh, some of the listeners may have family members who've been recently diagnosed, and we'd love to get them uh, in our study. Perfect.
2: Well, so for listeners, again, there will be a full transcript, all of those links in the show notes which will be at melanieavalon.com slash walls, W-A-H-L-S. Thank you so much. The last question, it's very short. It's what I ask every single guest on this podcast. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Oh, I'm grateful that I became ill. Had I not developed that mass, I would not have developed all of these insights. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful for the trigeminal neuralgia because without that, I I have this really amazing biosensor that tells me moment to moment just how many inflammatory cytokines I have in my brain. So I have a very exquisite sensor of my environment.
2: That is incredible. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Walls. This has been amazing. It's been a dream of mine to interview you for years and years. So thank you. I'm sure my listeners just learned so much and I look forward to your future work.
0: Sounds wonderful.
2: Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information,